Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and brain function, brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Pete Stabanoa, a clinical neuropsychologist and host for today's episode on the concept of cognitive reserve. Our listeners are in for a treat today, as our guest is an internationally recognized authority on this topic, Dr. Yaakov Stern. Yaakov Stern is the Florence Irving Professor of Neuropsychology in the Departments of Neurology and Psychiatry, as well as the Taub Institute for the Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain, and the Gertrude H. Sergievsky Center at Columbia University Vagalos College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's Chief of the Cognitive Neuroscience Division of the Department of Neurology. His research work focuses on cognition in normal aging and diseases of aging, including exploring the neural implementation of cognitive reserve, structural and functional imaging of cognitive aging, and modeling the natural history of Alzheimer's disease. Welcome, Yaakov. My pleasure to be here. So let's kind of jump right into this and let's start with the concept of cognitive reserve. Can you explain to our audience what that encompasses? Sure. So the concept of cognitive reserve speaks to individual differences in the resilience to brain changes. As we age, our brain changes with a disease, such as diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, where we acquire plaques and tangles. Those influence our ability for cognition and function. And the concept of cognitive reserve speaks to the fact that some people can cope with these brain changes better than others. Okay. So what are some of the factors that influence cognitive reserve? I don't, I don't imagine this is just a matter of willpower. No. So that's a, a huge area of research, and it's a multiple set of factors across the entire lifespan, starting from socioeconomic status early in life, the kind of education that people get later on, aspects of occupational attainment. Later in life, we could think about activities that people engage in and social networks. It also includes things like diet and exercise. So it's a whole set of different things that people have looked at that seem to influence people's abilities to cope better with brain changes as they age. I'm kind of a bad news first person. So maybe let's start with some of the threats to cognitive reserve. So what are, those, what are some of the factors that we would look at as negatively impacting cognitive reserve? It's really the negative to the things I'm saying. So uh, people who have poorer diets, we'll talk about it in a while, the, the diets might actually influence the brain directly, but can influence cognitive reserve as well. People who don't engage in exercise, I'd say there are environmental influences. People talk about now the exposome is the entire environment that mitigates against people being active. Things like pollution and stuff like that, I would say not so much influences on cognitive reserve, but they will influence the next concept we'll talk about of brain maintenance. Okay, so that, that sort of introduces that topic. So what is the concept of brain maintenance and what's its relationship to cognitive reserve? So the concept of brain maintenance actually was developed or at least explicated later than cognitive reserve, but it's a very important counterpart to cognitive reserve. And, and it's much easier to explain. So the idea of brain maintenance is that some people maintain their brains better than others. So I was talking about how the brain changes with aging. We could actually measure that stuff with imaging. So people's um, brains actually shrink. The white matter that connects the brain actually becomes less effective, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then, as I was saying, people aggregate these proteins that are part of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid and tau. And some people just have less of these brain changes than others throughout their life. And to the extent that you have less of these brain changes, your cognition is going to be more preserved. So it's a much simpler concept. Cognitive reserve speaks to after you have those brain changes, how well we cope with them. The brain maintenance speaks to, well, how well are we maintaining our brain altogether? So there are two parallel ideas. And a lot of what we were talking about that influences cognitive reserve can also influence brain maintenance, but in a very different way. They're two different things. So exercise certainly influences the size of the brain. Diet might influence the brain in various ways, but they're going to influence cognitive reserve differently than brain maintenance, and both are working together. Brain maintenance and cognitive reserve, I'd say, are the two things that I like to think about that sort of can account for different trajectories of cognitive change and functional change across the lifespan. Okay, so it sounds like those two things really work in tandem. Cognitive yes. reserve and brain maintenance are sort of intertwined. I think so, yeah. And I think that they're both very powerful concepts. And so we tend to study them together at this point. Okay. What are some of the research foundations in, in lay terms for these important kind of sophisticated concepts? What's been our progress with research informing us about these? Sure. So the concept of cognitive reserve, I could talk about it, really started first there quite a while ago. There were reports coming out that people with higher educational attainment were less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. It's reports quite a while ago. And I, as a neuropsychologist, heard those reports and I was a little doubtful because just not to get too technical, but when we give cognitive tests, we know that people with higher education do better on these tests. And I thought that these studies were just making a mistake. They were giving them a brief evaluation. The people with higher education were just doing better. So they didn't diagnose them. So one of the earliest studies that I did and a few other people was to start to follow older people who are not demented, didn't have Alzheimer's disease, and follow them over time to see uh, how many of them developed it over time. And in studies like those, we found that people with higher educational attainment were less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. And the thought was that we didn't think that this education influenced the plaques and tangles underlying Alzheimer's disease. So we thought that it was allowing people to cope with it better. And so that was a very early set of findings. I wasn't the only person doing that. There were a lot of these uh, epidemiologic studies of that sort. And then a very influential other early study was I reasoned that if some people can cope with brain changes better, if we can measure those brain changes in their brain, in those days, now we can do it with PET scans, uh, then we did it differently. If we had two people with Alzheimer's disease who clinically look very much the same, their memory was about as equally as bad, their function was equally as bad, you would predict that the person with higher educational or occupational attainment would actually have more advanced disease. In other words, mm -hmm. they're coping yeah. with more advanced disease. And that's what we found. So those okay. are like the very earliest findings that led to this idea of cognitive reserve. And then since then, there's a lot of research trying to understand how it might be implemented. There's a lot of epidemiologic work that looks at, as we were discussing, various lifestyle factors that might influence cognitive reserve. Now, the idea of brain maintenance, it's a later concept. It came out of a uh, Scandinavian groups 
where they were mainly following people with normal aging. You know, they follow people over time, measure their brains with uh, a scanning regularly, and they made the observation that some people's brains just change less rapidly than others. And associated with that was this idea that the people who maintained their brains better did better. So it's something that we sort of knew that better brain was associated with better cognition, but they really encapsulated it in this concept of brain maintenance. And studying them in research, you know, the best way to do these kinds of uh, studies is to follow people over time. You could actually use imaging to measure aspects of the brain, like the brain volume, how big it is, or how thick the cerebral cortex is, or various features of the brain. And you can look for these brain changes. You can test people over time. And you can look to see, and we've done it many other people, people who show less of these brain changes show less cognitive change or more preservation of cognition. And then on top of that, we can look to see whether these lifestyle factors that we've been discussing influence cognition over and above the brain. So given the amount of brain change that mm. two people have, two people have the same amount of brain change, one person is still doing better than the other. And that's the cognitive reserve portion. Then just to take it one more step, what I and many other people have been interested in is like, how is it implemented? Like what's going on in the brain? So can we use things like functional MRI where people are doing tasks in the scanner to see whether some people, here's simple ideas, uh, have more efficient processing or higher capacity processing, a more flexible processing of cognition that allows them to do better in the face of the same brain changes. Okay. So it makes intuitive sense that if we take care of the hardware, you're going to have a better course of aging. But you described this, what seems not so easy, I think, for us to understand, which is if you have the same brain changes, so you've got somebody that's reached a higher level of education, occupation, but with the same underlying hardware changes, yet they still are having a, a better course of aging. What do you think is going on? Well, that's your, I think your analogy is nice. You know, one thing we could say is it's the software. Now, it's hard because all of this is happening in the brain, right? So brain maintenance is a very easy concept to think about. You maintain your brain better, you do better. Cognitive research says, okay, there's brain changes that occur, but some people are doing better than others anyway. So it comes down to what you might want to call the software. And that's a much more complex thing to think about. How flexible are they in solution strategy? How trained are they in doing certain things? How many words can they handle? That's a lot of what I've been interested in using cognitive tasks now and imaging, as I was saying, to try to capture individual differences in how people actually do tasks that seem to be associated with them doing better in the face of a certain amount of brain change. Okay. So if we kind of stick with that analogy, if we're trying to assess the software, and it seems that some people just have it better than others for right. whatever reason. Is there any prospect on the horizon of people being able to change that piece of it? So let's assume that we're taking good care physically of our brain, but is there anything on the horizon that suggests there's something controllable that we could engage in that would improve that software? Right. So a lot of these lifestyle factors seem to be associated with that. And it really depends on your stage of life. Although it's, you know, I always like to say all the things your mother told you. <laughs> <laughs> They're always Health, right. Healthy diet, exercise seems to be very important. Social engagement, cognitive stimulation. 
for older people, I'm not talking about going and taking a college course if that's not what you're interested in, but just being engaged in something, whether it be a hobby or gardening, leisure activities, all of these things seem to be associated with better reserve. For the researchers, it's how to link those to what's going on in the brain and the flexibility. But really, these things, I think at this point, are really quite intuitive and people hear a lot about them. You know, I talk to my friends about, you know, they ask me, you know, I meet someone, what do you do? And they said, oh yeah, I'll use it or lose it. But these ideas when they were first being developed were really quite controversial. So I remember being at a conference and we do these things called poster presentations. You sit in front of a poster and people come over. And and so I was presenting those data I was telling you about where people with higher education were less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. And friends were coming by and sort of snickering like it was crystals or something. The idea that this flexibility of the brain can help people stave off something as powerful as Alzheimer's disease just did not seem logical. But now we understand that it is. That doesn't mean that someone with higher reserve won't get Alzheimer's disease, but they stave off the effects of the pathology longer. So you're talking about a lot of important lifestyle changes, activities, things that people can control, like I can exercise, I can choose a good diet and those sorts of things. So I'm really a pediatric clinician. Let's kind of take this back a few steps. So it's not something that I can just decide at age 60 that I'm going to start, do these good habits, and then somehow I'm going to maintain my cognitive reserve and, and maintain my brain health better. When does this start? Well, that's a great question. And I think that input throughout the life makes a difference, but it's pretty clear. I think people agree that the childhood, the infant phase is really very important in setting the stage for that. So just talking about the socioeconomic status of the family, just in terms of the benefits and the care that a child will get, the, the quality of the education. I mean, you, there's data on reading to children in the home. The biggest one is quality of education. There's a very good study called the British Birth Cohort that started right after World War II. They were worried about more whether there seemed to be less people having children then, but it turned out that there was the baby boom right after World War II. But they've been following these children since before they were born. And now they're in their 70s. So they could really look at all of this stuff and show that these very early life exposures and education, uh, just estimated IQ that people develop by age seven or eight really makes a difference. But, and my guess is that that makes a lot of difference. I didn't talk about genetics. It's sort of controversial to talk about that in some ways, but genetics can influence um, our cognition and our ability to benefit from education too. But the interesting thing that they found now, they just have a recent paper showing that over and above those childhood exposures, there's a set of lifetime exposures that also make a difference. So it's not like it's all set in childhood, but you're absolutely right that that's a key part of where our whole brain development and our cognitive development begins. So one of the issues that I think folks run into, and I certainly am, am guilty of this myself, is even though I know these things to do, and I and I have experts like you confirming that I should be exercising and a good diet. A lot of us just don't engage in these things. Is it ever too late? Like in terms of preserving brain maintenance and cognitive reserve, let's say that that someone hasn't been taking good care of themselves that way. It's never too late. The kind of data that's easiest to talk about is exercise. 
there's been, been numerous exercise studies where they take people who were what you might call couch potatoes, really <laughs> uh, not doing anything and randomizing them to some kind of exercise, aerobic exercise typically versus some control condition, even just stretching and toning. Inevitably, you see results on cognition. So the hard part of this, as you're saying, and I agree, is incorporating all of this into your lifestyle. I was never an exerciser. I just wasn't. You know, so you have to find ways to do it. That's why I think combining it with a social component is so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A group that you uh, walk with, it helps. What I learned to do is sort of build it into a a routine, like I'm on the high floor in my hospital where I work, the cafeteria is on the first floor. I try to walk up from the cafeteria. Every yeah. We're trying to estimate the contribution of all these various things. I think it's just really doing something. Although I think exercise and uh, some form of exercise and good diet are really very crucial. So you mentioned genetics. How much is something like Alzheimer's disease or other diseases of aging, how much is that just either predetermined or is somebody predisposed to those? Well, that's a huge area of study. So certainly there's a very small percentage of people who are born who have familial Alzheimer's disease and are just definitely going to get it at a very young age. That's a very small percentage. And then for the more regular, they call it low, late onset Alzheimer's disease, we know there's one gene, apolipoprotein E, that is associated with higher risk of getting demented. It's not inevitable. Let's put it that way. And okay. then there's numerous other genes. But the truth is that I have studies where we're looking at people in their 60s, 70s. A large proportion of these people already have amyloid in their brain and they're cognitively normal. Wow. Yeah. The bad actor is more the tau, the tangles, which once they start to develop, but yeah, I mean, it's the genetic part of the disease is not determinative, and there really is variability across people and when they start to be affected by these pathologies. I'm interested in that, of course, because of the cognitive reserve approach. If I can equalize across people the Alzheimer's pathology and those show that some people are doing better cognitively than others, then that's, to me, a sign that they have some reserve against the disease. That sounds to me like a really hopeful angle. It suggests that for most people, there's things we can do, maybe not to completely prevent things, but there's things we can do certainly to improve kind of our aging course and yeah, do better. I, I agree. Both of these concepts are very hopeful concepts. I think we always have to be careful. You know, someone gets Alzheimer's disease and we wouldn't want them to feel guilty. Oh, I didn't exercise. Right. But on the other hand, yeah, it's a very hopeful message, I believe. So recognizing that research is ongoing, in this, if you had a close friend or a family member who asked you for your top recommendations on how to optimize cognitive reserve and brain maintenance, what are the things you would boil it down to for them? Well, I think we've been covering them. I would say stay active. I'm at the point now where a lot of my friends are retiring. I'm trying not to. We need your research and your thought leadership, so <laughs> keep up. But yeah, no, most of my friends really... I guess because of the people that I know, really, they have book groups, they exercise, they're active, they're socially active. I think those are the uh, the main things to press. And I think the main thing to say is you don't have to go and take a course on nuclear physics. You know, it's just whatever you're interested in doing with gardening, whatever it is, 
you know, the other thing that we didn't talk about is sort of meditative kinds of things seem to be very helpful. So that's something I took to heart. So I, I started doing Tai Chi. It has a, a physical act component, but it certainly has a meditative component. And there's a lot of evidence that Tai Chi is very good, just regular meditation. It's good to be realistic about finding what you really want to do. And as we said, the social component, I think, is very useful. Just being with people is great. Being with people can really help you do these things that might be uh, beneficial. Great. We don't have to take nuclear physics. So it's literally not rocket science to, to, <laughs> exactly. to promote brain maintenance and cognitive reserve. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Stern, and thank our listeners for a great conversation today. For more information about the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation and neuropsychology more broadly, please visit nanfoundation.org. And also, please be sure to follow our BrainBeat podcast on Twitter at BrainBeatPod.